This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey guys, Joshua Lewis here. The video you're about to watch is a production from The Remnant Radio. Remnant Radio is a theology broadcast and we have pastors, teachers, and theologians from various churches and denominations to come on the show to discuss a wide range of theological topics. Uh, Many of our guests we agree with and many of our guests we disagree with, but overall our goal is to understand the scriptures more thoroughly so that we can understand the God who has given us his word. So we invite you in this conversation. We hope this video is edifying and uplifting to you. Uh, If you've been encouraged or uplifted by this ministry, we would ask, please help us create free content that we can bless the larger evangelical community with. Go to our website at theremnantradio.com. You can donate there and help us empower the body of Christ. Thank you so much. Be blessed. Hey, everybody. This is Joshua Lewis with Runit Radio. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in today. We've got an exciting episode for you. Uh, We are dialoguing about theosis with Dr. Michael Heiser. Uh, We've had Dr. Heiser on previously on on another episode. We talked about uh, The Unseen Realm, uh, one of his uh, first books, one of the first books I've ever read anyway. And uh, it was a really, really great introduction to the dialogue of the sons of God and Elohim and understanding kind of the, the divine dialogue that we see in that Deuteronomy 32 world view. Uh, If you haven't watched it, you can go ahead and go back and watch that video. If you're watching the live stream, stay with us. I'll drop the link in the description of this video so you can go back and watch that one. I'll also probably drop a link above. We're going to be dialoguing today about the doctrine of theosis. But before we get into that dialogue, uh, Dr. Heiser, can we get a little bit about you and your ministry for those who who might not be familiar with you? Sure. Uh, For the last 15 years, I was... um scholar in residence at Logos Bible Software, which is in Bellingham, Washington. Um, that wasn't my only job title. It was my most recent job title, but been there almost 15 years. Um, I'm, I'm leaving. We're actually moving in January to move to Florida, so 3,000 miles away um, to, to do something, something new in ministry. Uh, the, the short version is I, I get my own school, <laughs> which sounds really crazy. Um, we're doing a two-year um, really school of theology and ministry through a l- very large church network uh, in Jacksonville, Florida. For those who, who are somewhat familiar with me and wanted, would want to know why in the world would I do that, uh, leave Logos. You could go to nakedbiblepodcast.com. It's episode 279. That'll give you the story. Um, but I'm a, I'm a biblical scholar by training. I'm probably most known for the Naked Bible podcast, uh, which we just we just hit our 300th episode. I think it's been five or six years. Um, yeah, it's probably going on six, you know, for that. And uh, Unseen Realm, of course, which you mentioned already, which uh, has done quite well. Its shorter version is Supernatural and a bunch of other books, so... That's kind of, you know, on the, on the biblical side of things, what I'm known for. I also do fiction. 
I have been sort of a, a trafficker in the fringe uh, community, uh, fringe alternative worldview, you know, community, things like ancient aliens for over 20 years. So I'm kind of known for that as being the, the friendly Christian neighborhood debunker guy, but debunker is a little harsh, uh, but you know, you get the idea, but uh, we have a fringe pop channel. Uh, it's a YouTube channel that where we sort of create little you know, 15, 20 minute response videos to all sorts of, you know, fringe topics, you know, was Jesus married to Mary Magdalene, you know, ancient alien stuff, all that. So we, we try to have some fun with that, but also provide good information. Uh, I podcast on those subjects as well. I'm, I'm just kind of all over the place. So, so if you move, uh, I, I need to know, is the naked, <laughs> the naked Bible podcast going to stay alive? Yeah. Yeah. They, they want me to do everything I, I do now. It's just, you know, what I would essentially be doing, you know, for a living, that's what's going to change. You know, I'll, I'll go back to teaching. Um, once the school starts, you know, I'll, I'll teach one night a week, at least start. It might be a little bit more than that as things go forward. But uh, no, they, they want to encourage me to write and podcast and do the YouTube Great. stuff. So yeah, nothing's going to change as, as far as I know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, it's more or less just moving 3000 years to do mostly the same stuff. But uh, the, the real key element is that they have, they have the infrastructure and more importantly, the intent, the will uh, to take what I would loosely call my content, which is biblical theology and uh, make it go global because they have, they have uh, satellite campuses in lots of different parts of the world. So and you've done lots of global stuff. I mean, you, you, you've been working yeah. with the, the Bible project recently, right? That's yep. been very big yep. impact. I've seen uh, some of their videos coming out recently and I just really enjoyed those that you've worked on. Yeah. They're, them they're huge. You know, they, they do, they just do wonderful stuff. Um, you know, they do the kind of thing I wish I could do, but I don't have a staff and they do. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, Tim, you know, Tim, I, I knew very briefly from grad school because I, I defended my dissertation during his first year, Tim Mackey. And uh, he likes to tell the story of being, I, I, my dissertation defense was his, the first one he ever visited or saw and watched and it terrified him. So <laughs> good, good for him. You know, he didn't quit. <laughs> so, so for those uh, who are watching, I want to catch them up, maybe just a little bit. We'll kind of synopse uh, real briefly what we just dialogued in the first one. And I know you've you've slept since last year, so I'm sure that yeah. there's not been uh, exactly what we talked about. But maybe we can summarize the idea of the sons of God and the Elohim concept just briefly sure. so that we can dive into our, our dialogue today, because I think it would be helpful knowing that context. Yeah, my uh, again, I, what I try to do just generally is I want to try to convince people who care about scripture to read the Bible with the ancient Israelite in their head or the first century Jew in their head. And that is the right context for interpreting the Bible is the context that produced the Bible, you know, under God's providence. These are the people he picked living at the time they did their worldview, the way they just looked at things. They're ancient people. They're not moderns. And so all the, all the things we're used to hearing in church, you know, uh, some of it comes from the text of scripture. A lot of it is mediated through tradition. So I try to, to get people to, you know, value the ancient context above everything else. And if you do that, you run into what I would call the divine council worldview. You run into what I, what I also call the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. What that means is 
the Old Testament writers and Psalm 82 is sort of the starting point for this in Unseen Realm and my own sort of watershed experience as well, where Psalm 82 <clears throat> makes it very clear, and it's certainly not the only passage, but once you see it in Psalm 82, you start seeing it everywhere, that the biblical writers believed that the gods of the nations were real. They were real entities. They're, they're spiritual beings. They are lesser than the God of the Bible, the God of Israel not just in terms of reputation, but ontologically. They are lesser beings. They are contingent. He is not. And that rattles <clears throat> people because we're used to looking at the letters G, O, and D on a piece of paper or on a screen. And because of our tradition, uh, we, are, we mentally default to the letters G, O, and D, meaning, you know, being about a specific set of unique attributes. That is not why biblical writers are using the term Elohim. Elo in Psalm 82, it reads in Hebrew, you know, Elohim nitzav ba'adat el. Elohim is a very common term for God. So in, in, that, in that first line of Psalm 82, it's singular because of the grammar. It's a singular participle that is the predicator to Elohim. So it's capital G, God takes his stand in the divine council. And then the next line is Bekerev Elohim Yishpot. In the midst of the Elohim, he passes judgment. So you can't be in the midst of one. We're talking about a group here. So you have the God of the Bible. If you read through the Psalm, he's railing. They're having a, a, a meeting in the divine council. That's a biblical term, Psalm 82.1, the first stanza. And he's railing on them and, and pronouncing judgment on them. You get down to verse six. He says, I said to all of you, plural, plural pronoun, you are gods, Elohim, sons, plural of the most high, but nevertheless, you're going to die like men. And, and this, this is an eschatological judgment that God is rendering against the gods of the nations. There's no hint that they're people. There's no hint that they're idols. If you go over to Psalm 89, you have another divine council session there, same sons of the most high, sons of God. It's in, this, in the skies, okay? This is very clearly a, a spiritual world kind of thing, but you have multiple Elohim. And, and so a biblical writer actually uses Elohim of uh, half a dozen different things other than the God of Israel. So that tells you it's not about attributes because the biblical writers will deny certain attributes to all other Elohim, you know, creator, sovereignty, omnipotence, you know, omniscience, only the God of Israel has those things. And so you have to ask ourselves, what in the world's going on here? Because that sure sounds like a pantheon. And what's going on is you would use Elohim uh, to describe any entity that is by definition, by nature, a member of the disembodied spiritual world. That's all they are. So there's lots of those, but only one of them is Yahweh of Israel. He is species unique among the gods. This is why the Bible says many times that Yahweh is the God of gods. It, it actually means what it says. The text means what it says. You know, they're not idols and, and non-existent beings. So that that is important because when you get into why the world is, in, in, in biblical thought, why the world is such a place filled with evil and sin and death, you know, all these, all the suffering, it's because in the biblical thought, you have not just one reason, not just Genesis 3, the fall, for why the world is what it is, but you have three. You have three supernatural rebellions going on, you have, accompanied by human rebellions. Genesis 3 is one, that's you know the serpent. Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the sons of God. And sons of God is just a term for Elohim, 
They're actually called Elohim. Psalm 82, Elohim, sons of the Most High. Just look at the verse, verse 6, right there it is, point blank. Um, this is who they are, Psalm 89. Again, the term is sons of God there in, in the council. And so this is another name for the members of the heavenly host, and some of them rebel. And you have three episodes, three incidents. So Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is the second. The last one is what happens at Babel. And that's the key one because we know the story of the Tower of Babel. But if you go over to Deuteronomy 32, here's the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. You have in verse 8, again, if you're reading that with ESV, NLT, NRSV, because they use the Dead Sea Scrolls in their translations, which all translations should, but some of them don't. It says, when the Most High, we know who that is. It's not a brain teaser. It's the God of the Bible, God of Israel. When the Most High divided up the nations, when he fixed their boundaries, he divided them up according to the number of the sons of God. But Israel, verse 9, is Yahweh's portion. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. And if you trace that language through Deuteronomy, what you, what you come out with is God punished humanity at Babel. He not only confused their languages and divided them up into nations, the table of nations in Genesis 10, which is the precursor to the Babel event, but he assigned the nations to other members of the heavenly host. And those are the guys in Psalm 82 that are getting railed at by God, because God wants humans, no matter if, if he's punishing them or not, he wants them ruled justly. Why? Because they're his imagers. Humanity is special. But that's not what the gods do. That's not what these sons of gods do, sons of God do. Instead, in Deuteronomy 32, you keep reading, they seduce the Israelites to worshiping them instead of Yahweh. In Psalm 82, they sow chaos among the nations. They, of course, turn the hearts of their people into idolatry and worshiping them instead of the true God. And you have a big mess. And this is, this is what frames the entirety of the biblical worldview after Babel. This is why God, after he divorces humanity, he calls Abraham and says, I'm going to start over. Okay, I'm, going to, I'm going to pick this one guy. I'm going to raise up another human family through him. And, it's, and that's why the rest of the Bible is Israel against the nations, Yahweh against the gods. <clears throat> it, it, it's, it's part of what, it, it's, it's the back, backdrop to Daniel 10, the princes, the supernatural princes of the nations, Persia and Greece. Where do they get, where does Daniel get that? He gets it from Deuteronomy 32. He gets it from Babel. These are, these are Paul's principalities and powers, rulers, thrones, dominions. All those terms are terms of geographical dominion. So it's not an accident. So this is the biblical worldview. And, you know, that's the bad side. That's the fallen side. But what we're going to talk about tonight is really related to the good side of that. Because what God initially wanted with Eden, we have plural, plurals in Genesis 1.26 where God is speaking to the members of the heavenly hosts. Hey, let's, let us create humankind in our image. And then when God, when that, the creation actually happens, it switches back to the singular. So God created humanity as his image. Okay, male and female, he created them. And there's a reason why there's plurals and why there's singulars. Maybe we'll talk about that tonight. But, but the bottom line is what God wanted was a human family to coexist with his supernatural family, the sons of God from Job 38 that were around before the creation of the foundation of the world. Heaven comes to earth because when, it, when God creates humans, they can't go to him. So he comes to them. God is going to inhabit the world he has made for them and he's going to enjoy them. And he's going to, they're not only going to be his kids, but they're going to be his partners in spreading his goodness and his rule to all other humans that extend from Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. 
make the rest of the world like this wonderful place, Eden, and we're going to enjoy it together. God wants a family and he wants partners. And it all blows up pretty quickly. But God never gives up on the original plan. And so what, what salvation history in the Bible is ultimately about, yes, it's about redemption. But ultimately, it's about making humans what they should have been in Genesis, and that is fit for sacred space, fit to occupy the, God's house, fit to live with God. This should be the most natural thing in the world, and, and this was God's original design. And so we're going to talk about theosis, which is the end point process of all that. Once you know, human beings are, are redeemed you know, through the work of Christ on the cross, God become man so that man can become God. That's the Athanasius, you know, his famous line. Uh, it's not that we become Yahweh's, you know, we're not Mormons. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's that we become, you know, we, we, we are already partakers of the divine nature, Peter tells us in his epistle. But we will ultimately be made like Jesus. We will, we will be glorified to be as much like him as we can possibly be and be fit for his home and sacred space. And God will have his way in the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eden will be restored. This is why the book of Revelation ends as a global Eden with God's children ruling over the nations. Who rules the nations now? The fallen sons of God, Deuteronomy 32. We replace them. We become the reconstituted council. We, we fill the void created by these rebellions. And that is our destiny. And that is, that's, our, that's our identity and our mission and our destiny. All those things wrapped up into one. So that was a rather long introduction to, no. to that. But, but for people who are new, you know, Mike doesn't add anything to Scripture. But, but there are a lot of familiar things in Scripture, familiar verses, that require a framework to understand what in the world is this talking about. And we have our, our churches are filled with with lots of people who have a good amount of data in their heads. You know, at least I hope so, because they should be being taught in church. But they have a lot of data points in their head, but they have no framework. Hmm. No, there's nothing that helps them connect dots. And that's what I was trying to do in Unseen Realm, and basically everything I do. I, I I'm a dot connector. Uh, I want I operate with the simple and maybe naive assumption that hey, you know this Bible. You know, it ought to make sense. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all the, the, everything, everything that's in there contributes to something. It's a matrix of ideas that should make sense. And the way you, it starts to make sense is if you start to read it as an ancient person would, not as a modern 21st century, you know, fill in the blank, evangelical, Catholic, Methodist, pres- whatever it is, you know. Sure. So uh, we have this. Uh, this prepackaged notion that the term yeah. God, when we hear the word, the, the letters sounded out in English, yeah. G-O-D, God, we think omnipresent, yeah. omnipotent, this yeah. this uh, uh, sovereign being, whereas you, you're suggesting that the ancient Near Eastern culture, when they heard the word God, uh, they heard uh, divine being. And then when they yep. heard God of all gods, they knew that was the supreme God of heaven and right. earth, of everything, the creator yep. God of all things. Christian, Christian theology of, you know, let's say, let's just start real simple. Christian theism that, that holds that the God of the Bible is, is unique. There's only one of those. That's mm-hmm. correct. But you don't get to that theology by virtue of the term Elohim. Mm-hmm. There are lots of Elohim. Okay, only one of them is Yahweh, again, the God of the Bible. And, and biblical writers telegraph that he is unique 
by the way they they talk about him in you know the way they describe him they, with all these things you know the omniscience the omnipotence the sovereignty the creatorship and, and they also deny those attributes to other elohim so so the theology is is good and clear but it doesn't derive from the term elohim mm. you get to the theology by observing what the biblical writers say about this one and will and refuse to say about other ones Right. And, and that's good. So so when we talk about, uh, and I know those of you who are watching right now, I'm seeing the comment section just kind of explode, right? Yeah, we get to be partakers of the divine nature. And uh, some of you guys don't like this. Okay. So I see that you in the comments. <laughs> I see you there. I'm present. But if, as you can tell, I don't have a co-host here. So I can't read the questions and like respond while hosting well, so, this interview some, as well as I usually some do. People are, some people are bothered. I don't want to be flippant here, but sure. some people are bothered by by what the Bible says, <laughs> but but for some they're bothered by a term like theosis, because their tradition doesn't use it. When we say theosis, you know, fill in a, a one that your tradition does use, maybe something like glorification or sanctification or, or ultimate sanctification. It's the same thing. Yeah, we're talking about the same thing. It's just the different traditions, different you know figures, Calvin. Luther, somebody from Eastern Orthodoxy, Catholicism, they, they're they observing verses like, hey, we become partakers of the, of, of the divine nature, or 1 John 3, hey, we're going to be like him, you know, we're going to be like he is. Yeah. So they're, they're looking at these verses, and they just use different terminology to try to describe what the verses say. So if your problem is the terminology, I understand that, but just realize, you know, it, you know, use the term you like. If your problem is the text of scripture, well, there isn't much I can help you with. Yeah. So, so you if you, if you want the long, drawn out, you know, dialogue of this, I think we're going to kind of build a case, and and you you can correct me if you think that there's a better line. What we'll do is we we'll kind of determined already. The term "sons of God" is a a term that's applied to angelic beings. Now, maybe this would be a in good way old, to kind of in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, right? And in the you know, New Testament, it's different. Yeah. In the New Testament, we have like Ephesians one five, Ephesians three yep. twenty, Galatians four five, talking about us being adopted into the family as sons now now if we can say okay these seem to be elohim these seem to be some kind of divine beings uh that that are not god the god uh but are some kind of lesser uh uh, you know beings that that rule and reign with christ how are we invited into that in the present age are we uh, are we ruling and reigning with him now or are we ruling and reigning with him later are there are there measures of that now measures of that later maybe you can hash that out with us and and explain that role yeah, it, it is a curious feature, and I think a significant one, that you get sons of God language or children of God language that in the Old Testament is used for supernatural beings, you know, God's heavenly family, we'll say. <clears throat> in the New Testament, it's very clearly used for God's human family. In fact, you, you don't get that terminology used in the New Testament for supernatural beings. You just don't. Instead, now it's it's humans, you know. And that's because the the supernatural family of God is actually a template for how God for what, what God wanted humans to be and what God still wants humans to be. He wants them to, to be part of his family and to rule and reign with him. Again, this is every Christian tradition believes this. Literally every Christian tradition will affirm these things because they're so transparently taught in scripture. Now, as to your question, how does that work now? I think this is a this, along with eschatology, are, is probably the most obvious uh, obvious examples of the 
what theologians like to refer to as the already but not yet paradigm. That is, there are there are passages in Scripture that refer to this being a present reality, and there are other passages passages of Scripture that speak of this as a future reality. So you 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 get both sides of this. You know, it's as though from you know from our perspective, you know, we're we're still we're still trapped in a in a human body. Our ultimate destiny as believers is that we will get a body like Jesus had, 1 Corinthians 15. This is the whole point. You know, we're, we're still going to be embodied, but we will be like, you know, a, a spiritual being that is on the spiritual plane where Jesus, you know, rules and reigns now. But yet those beings are still described in embodiment terms. Even Jesus, whether he's, it's a scene in the heavens or a scene where he, the resurrected Christ is on earth, it doesn't matter. The language of embodiment is still used, and, and, and again, what that what that means for us is that, you know, we, we have this body that we're born with now that is still fallen. It's unredeemed, okay, internally, spiritually, our, our soul, however you want to describe this. We have we're a new creation, but we are a new creation that is trapped in an old body, and the body has to be yet redeemed. So, we are, in some way already what God wants us to be, but in other ways we are not. So we have this already but not yet thing going on uh, that, again, Scripture affirms both sides of that coin. And so we, we need to talk about both sides. Uh, we're, we don't extrapolate from that things like, oh, well, I guess as Christians, you know, we're sinless now or can be like, have you read the New Testament? You know, <laughs> I mean, almost every page, you know, is, is saying something about the believer's struggle with, you know, the flesh, the unredeemed body and, and all that goes with it, the, the patterns, you know, the, the thought patterns and whatnot. It, it, this is all part of our, our fallen embodiment. We are new creations, but we are trapped in the flesh. It is the spirit that wars against, you know, the flesh wars against the soul of the spirit, you know, all these passages. And, they, they are what they are because we're in this sort of intermediate sort of trajectory of, of being already something, but not yet that something. And, and scripture gives us this tension. It's actually a really familiar tension uh, in, in scripture because, you know, in God's mind, there's a realization of things that we have yet to experience. And so that's part of why these things get expressed the way they do, because you know, God, you know, is on a mission to redeem, you know, as many humans as, as he can. He has linked the return of the Lord and the end of days and the day of the Lord with, with something called the fullness of the Gentiles, which is a precursor and a trigger to the, the reawakening and reengrafting of Israel. I mean, there all of these things are tied together. And so it, the, the, this thing we call the kingdom of God over, you know, w- which we will reign in which we will exercise authority with Jesus as partners, you know, with him and with each other as, as ruling partners within his family. Um, that is something that is inexorably headed somewhere. And we are part of that trajectory and journey, but we are not there yet. So again, that, that's good. I'm not, we're not affirming anything that we, we don't already know by experience, but, but scripture I think scripture, the, the, the great thing about this is not that we 
sit here and be puzzled about the language because we know we sin and we struggle. All that's true. But I, I think if we really thought about it, we might have a new sense of identity. We might look around to people who, you know, are in the, are in the body of Christ and look at them as fellow travelers, you know, with us that, that share the same identity. We might look at people on the outside as images who are lost, you know, people who are supposed to be in here with us, but they're not, you know, hence the great commission. You know, in other words, there's, there really is something to be said for how we think about ourselves and how we think about, you know, people who have, you know, embraced the gospel and people who still need to. It's good. It's all wrapped up in these concepts. So, um, as, uh, okay, I'm going to cut this over. When we're talking about like the Eastern Orthodox view, right, which we, we would typically use theosis or deification there, uh, many, many, as I'm reading the, the historical kind of definitions of Eastern Orthodox, how, how they describe uh, deification or theosis, when I read those things, I just see sanctification everywhere, right? Uh, uh, one of the passages that comes up frequently uh, as I'm reading and trying to, trying to catch myself up on, on some history here uh, is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And, and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, uh, for this comes uh, from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Second uh, Corinthians three eighteen. So, so there is this idea that uh, the knowledge. So, uh, eternal life is to know God in Jesus Christ, whom He sent. Right. So, it's like this knowledge of who God is transforms mm-hmm. who we are, and as we place faith in Christ. Uh, that work is a renewing effect that's constantly, you know, Romans, uh, was like 3.12, being transformed, the renewing of your mind. There's this, there's this process of Christ working in us to produce his image that we could share with the world. Now, mm-hmm. now, even in what you just explained there, um, it sounded as if the, the present age, uh, sanctification, and the, the future age, glorification, if we're going to use some of these terms uh, the way that Protestants typically use them, um, I, and, and I know if you're in the Eastern Orthodox tradition or you're in the, the Roman Catholic tradition, these these terms might be a little bit different. Uh, but but if there's this future glorification, both of those, the now and the then, uh, are both subordinate and in a much inferior way to God himself. And in and, and, and the way that the Eastern Orthodox people communicate this, and I would love to hear your thoughts and the nuances of how you would uh, kind of explain this. They talk about a piece of metal, like being in the fire, right? You leave it in there long enough and, and it begins to heat up. It, if you even leave it in there really long, it'll even begin to illuminate light, uh, like the attributes of the fire become the attributes of the metal. But the metal itself never becomes the essence of the fire. So we're not like adding person to the Trinity, we're not 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 becoming gods in that nature. How would how would you, if if you were to dialogue with someone that's kind of foreign to the idea or doctrine of theosis, when you're communicating to them uh, the nature of a person and, and how we're being transformed into this kind of divine image bearer that's partaking of this divine nature, but not becoming in ourselves that that view of divine? How, how would you distinguish those things? Yeah, I, I don't I don't see I don't see an ontological transformation that culminates in erasing the creature creator distinction. Mm. Okay. I think that's an, that's an important point. And as you described it, you know, even Eastern Orthodoxy, it's not going to violate that point. You know, it, it, I I think that 
in many cases, the differences between the traditions are, are maybe the analogies they use and how um, sort of how the, uh, how people can become, you know, I'm, I, I need to try to be a little bit careful here because I, I don't want anyone who's Eastern Orthodox to think that I think that they're Gnostic. That isn't my point. But essentially how we become aware of of where we're at in this process. A, that there is a process that 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 God does say this 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 about humans, you know, believers. Um, so the, I, th I think there each tradition tries to approach again how this is known, you know, or and how people are are made aware of these things, and then how they how they respond again, and they use different analogies. I I personally like the imaging. Uh, terminology, and I think it, it's deliberate in the New Testament to take us back to Genesis one. Um, imaging is just, you know, that's not the only language that that the Old Testament uses. It will actually link imaging to bearing the name, like the the, the commandment, "Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain." The the word "take" there in English is actually the Hebrew "nasa," which means to lift up or bear or carry. And we get this concept of, of representation. Again, imaging is representation. It's mimicking. It's miming. It, it's, it's being God's proxy. Again, again, however we want to express that, there are different ways to do that. Bearing the name, again, is, is the same thing. You are, you know, the, the priestly blessing, you know, that, that the Lord would set his name on you. Okay, there, there's ownership there. There's identification you know, I think the, the best analogy for us is if I, you know, when, when I work for a company and I go out and I, and I speak for the company, I represent the company. It's, a, it's as though I am the company. I'm, I'm not, but it's as though I am because I'm, I'm its proxy. I, I'm, its, I'm its representation or replacement or, again, whatever terminology helps in the eyes of others. And this is how Israel was perceived. This is how believers are perceived. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The apostles, you know, after they're beaten in Acts 5, they go away rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer for the name. Okay, it's another way of referring to God. So the representation is, is, is I think, a really good way to look at it. Imitation, you know, being the reflection or the image. You know, there's a reason why Jesus is called the express you know, essentially the ultimate image of God. You know, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Well, the, the Jesus' point when, he, when that's said in John is not that, oh, here's what God looks like. You know, he's got hair this long and, you know, this style. And it, no, it, it's, it's about character. It's about, um, again, just it, it's behavior, it's character. It's, it's sort of a... The exact representation of the Father's yeah, nature. Right, right. How... When, when people encountered Jesus and got to know him, they would know what God is like. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and, th and this is the role we're supposed to, to play, you know, and, and the verse you just read in second Corinthians three, it makes the same point. If, if we do this, if, if we, if we imitate Jesus, this is discipleship. Okay. If we imitate Jesus, we will be more conformed to his image and he is the ultimate image of God. And so by doing that, we, we are essentially on this trajectory to, to go back and be the thing that God wanted us to be in the perfect environment of Eden when we were created anyway, you know, originally anyway, you know, God will have his way. This is why everything is going 
you know, forward into the past, as it were, you know, back to Eden. Uh, so I, I like that a Back the to the imaging. Future uh, ripoff. Yeah, like, there you go. <laughs> back to Eden. <laughs> yeah, I, I like imaging and reflecting uh, representation. You know, all, all of these terms, I think, you know, have a, you know, help us nuance. You know, what, what it is, you know, how we should think about this. But imitation is really helpful. You know, what would you know? We've turned it into a trite expression. What would Jesus do? Well, it, it's still a question worth asking, definitely. Um, you know, how, how did he model, you know, what God, you know, and he reduces it to love God, love your fellow, you know, man, you know, all, all the law and the prophets hang on these two things. And, and, you know, why is that? Well, we, you know, if, if we love God, that, that's our believing loyalty, you know, in the God of Israel. We believe he is who he is. And that he has decided he, he, he desires to be in covenant relationship with us. And he has taken all the steps necessary to bring us back into his family. That's right. And if, and if we really believe that, then we are the way we live will show it. It'll show what we believe. That's good. So we'll, we'll, we'll act like it. So to quote um, some of the ancient church fathers that you, you actually mentioned at the beginning of the, the program, uh, Athanasius of Alexandria mm-hmm. uh, or Maximus the Confessor, they both seem to make similar statements that God became man so that man could become God. Now, I've seen these statements mimicked, copied, altered um, in such ways to kind of make some abuses. You know, we see... Uh, like you, you had mentioned at the beginning of the show as well, Mormons also take these guys and look, the early church fathers agree with us uh, that uh, the idea of uh, of deification into the same essence of God. So, so what we've been talking up into this point is that the ontologically, our very nature stays. The, I don't want to say nature stays the same because some of those those terms theologically can change, but 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 who we are ontologically at our essence that we are human and God at his essence is God. Uh, and that was actually, I think, uh, uh, Athanasius's argument is that God was by essence divine, and we are by adoption. Uh, we are granted right. that. So, so, yeah. so maybe, maybe we should talk a little bit about uh, where this kind of delves into heresy. You know, so in the way that yes, it's good. There's something that we have to look forward to that we are partakers of that divine nature now, and then some later. Uh, but also, where does that become greatly imbalanced if it's taken to the wrong extreme? Yeah, I, I, th- I think, you know, you, you see those kinds of things. Um, I mean, you, you, Mormonism, you know, it, it's really kind of odd because if, if you, you know, it's not the only thing that would sort of really sort of upend the whole system if you followed it to its logical trajectory. But, but here's one element, because it, it, in essence, if everybody becomes you know, Yahweh becomes the God of the Bible, you know, that they're all, you know, equivalent. It it does erase a creature creator distinction. And, and you're left with a conundrum that at the end of the road, there still is a creator creature distinction in the way that the new earth, you know, the the eternal state is described. It's very clear that none of that's erased. It's not all like absorbed into, into this amorphous, you know, personality less, you know, deity thing. And now we're all part of this blob or whatever. I mean, there, there's still a, a very clear, you know, creator uh, creation distinction. And so that is something that cannot be lost in, in any system without, you know, essentially just ignoring, you know, what, what you're supposed, what you say you're defending. And that is the, the scriptures. So you have that problem, but I, I think even, even more fundamentally, 
you don't you don't have any any passage that eliminates the distinction between God and his creatures in terms of beings who are made like him. You don't you don't you never have that erasure, you know, made. Even even when we are you know, I think of passages in Revelation where yeah, Jesus does say I will give those who overcome I will give give him or them the morning star. That, that's, a, that's a reference to the, the Davidic right to rule. I will set them over the nations. This is Revelation 2 and 3 language. That's true. Okay, but he doesn't say that, that I will make them me. He, in other words, he's still the one deciding to do that. There, there's mm-hmm. still a hierarchical you know, balance there to be maintained. So uh, those are the more subtle kind of kind of wacky you know, things that, that you can really kind of go off, off the deep end with. I think more to the more to just kind of how people live you know on that level i think the the idea of sinless perfection uh is is just a wrong road you know yeah. to go down here you know either the assumption that you can do this or that you have arrived and and you'll see people within christian traditions actually say both or either yeah which which is is at the end of the day it's just pure manipulation you know of of, of people that you want to have authority over you know, and I have to question, you know, where's the Christ likeness in that? You know, where's, the, where's Philippians 2 in that? Where's the mind of Christ and all that? Yeah, you know? that's good. You know, it, it just it just sort of defies not only logic, but it defies, you know, some of the the way that that Jesus, even the exalted Jesus, is talked about. Yeah, and we would we would really want, for those of you who are watching, to familiarize yourself with early church history because a lot of these conversations of who God is at his essence versus who we are at our, at our essence, at our, at our ontological level. Uh, so here's, here's a couple things you can find here on our website. Uh, Apostles Creed, uh, we, we go through eight-part series of uh, apostolic Christianity. It's what we call it. It's the Apostles Creed. We go through line by line in dialogue about that. We have the doctrine of the Trinity. Dr. Scott Harrell from Dallas Theological uh, Seminary came in and did 12 parts on that. He's been working on the Trinity for 20 years. Uh, he, is, he is a rock star. I'd encourage anybody to pick that up. Uh, and then uh, the patristics, uh, th- this is another series that we're doing with the early church fathers. We quoted those two church fathers that we just mentioned, uh, Athanasius and uh, Maximus the Great, uh, Maximus the Confessor, I'm sorry. And uh, both of those you can find there. Uh, those are going to be releasing in June. If you want to go to our website now, you can sign up and say, hey, we want access to these when you release them. So just go on there, uh, give us your email, and we uh, will let you know when the series come out. But those are great stuff. I mean, Scott Harrell, mm-hmm. Rockstar, uh, 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 Matthew Escovel. Josh Hoffert, great guys. I've uh, dedicated a lot of time into researching uh, early church history and what we as a Christian um, uh, community throughout all time have always believed. So those things would really help this conversation. So we would encourage you guys uh, to do some of that uh, study. Um, as we're looking at uh, this doctrine, well, I, I mean, it, just even think about about the assumption here that that God is going to change humans to be like jesus okay as 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 much as much divinity as you can pack into that okay what's the mechanism for it it's god (laughs) so right away there's a distinction there there's an ontological distinction to be made between the one with the ability to do that and the ones who are acted upon yeah Okay, you you can't lose these ontological distinctions, and you and you you ought not to ignore them in the way that you talk about this. So I've got I've got some some common 
heresies, I think that I, we could say about the, uh, what we call little gods uh, doctrine. That's, that's, uh, and, and I don't want to be overly uh, broad brushing here. Mm-hmm. I know I, as I've spoken about this and I'm learning about this, there are lots of churches in this kind of vein that don't believe this, but, but it seems to be a creeping doctrine in people who claim to be a part of the word of faith. Um, and, and they, they, they talk about, uh, little gods. So I'm just going to, I'm going to spit out a couple of ideas here. I'm not trying to throw any one person under the bus, name drop anybody. I'm just trying to get some of those ideas out because right. their fandom coming after us is not something I'm necessarily interested in. So, so when we talk about, um, uh, Genesis, right. Uh, uh, one of these popular guys will say something to the effect of, uh, God made everything after it's like he told the, the 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 animals to be made after their own kind and and the plants to bear seed after their own kind and they bear after their own kind and then right after that god produces man in his own image right uh, they'll say um, that in luke chapter 3 that adam was the son of god in the same way that that christ was the son of god they they will claim um, uh, divine authority in Adam, and that that was lost in a sense, uh, and that that is being reinstituted even in a better way than what Adam had. And if he was the son of God in the same way Jesus was, then so are we. So, so again, uh, I, 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 it's not orthodox. I'll call it heresy. Yeah, that, I'll call it what it is. But, but I'll let you take a stab at it. Well, I, my first question be was, is why do you suppose that that the biblical text doesn't use the the same phrasing? after its kind. Mm. Why is that? You know, because there, because there is no kind, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, God is unique. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have a kind that that someone else can be after. And so the, the language gets changed. It varies because you can't express the idea the same way. I mean, you, you more or less have to ignore the, the change in terminology and, and, and the reasons why that might be, and why that really is, to, to make these, these sorts of statements. And, and another thing that it does is it, it'll affirm something that, that, yeah, there's something to the idea that Adam is the son of God, okay? Israel, corporately, is also the son of God, okay? Exodus 4, ex, you know, I mean, twice Israel is called the son of God, you know, in the, in the in the Exodus account, Hosea eleven one, out of Egypt I have called my son, referring back to Israel. Uh, were they pure as the driven snow? <laughs> okay, quite. we had this yeah. thing called the exile. All right. In, in other words, the, the the sonship status refers to the unique relationship between those people, those humans, and, and God. You know, and, the, and they, these are God's choices. God wants a human family. He started with Adam. So, okay, Adam is his son, his human son. And Israel is the kickstarting of that after the Babel event, the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. The king is God's son. Were all of Israel's kings, David included, the man after God's own heart, were they pure as the driven snail? No, David was a screw up, okay? I mean, let's just be honest. If there was a, a, an awful sin to commit, David did it, you know? But the reason he's spared is because he never worships another. Okay, that, that's the reason that, that he, you know, is allowed to, to basically live and doesn't have the covenant withdrawn. So the, there are weaknesses to the analogies is the point. And, and it's one thing to affirm a pattern, Adam, son of God, Israel, son of God, King, son of God, also Messiah, because he's in the line of David, son of God, Jesus, son of God, we're sons of God. He, he shares, you know, Jesus shares his, his messianic rule with us. 
over a new global Eden. Okay, we get that. There's a reason for the patterning. And the patterning is, is to remind us that, hey, God never gave up on that original program back in Genesis, and he's going to have his way. And, and we're going we're gonna to be the beneficiary of that. It's not to, to claim that we have ontological sameness with God, because if all those other sons of God did, how do they sin? That's good. Who, who, are, they, who are they offending? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make any sense. So th- this, is, this is typically what, you know, I'll use the word cults, yeah. or, or just people who just frankly don't think very well, will we'll pick up on, on a word that, that's used in scripture or a phrase And they will just start extrapolating and they will never bother to ask the probative questions that need to be asked or actually look at the analogies in scripture and and ask the simple question, well, if this is true, what else must be true? Or, you know, how, you know, where, where, where are, where's this consistent? Where does it break down? And when we see where it breaks down, okay, then how are we supposed to think about that? Because we, we know we can't go over here and think this thought, but maybe there are other thoughts we can think. I mean, this is just, this is just clear thinking, you know, comparing scripture with scripture and, and observing the phenomena of scripture and letting the phenomena of scripture give us boundaries on what we can say. That's good. So when we talk about um, Adam in the garden, I mean, they're again, just quoting other guys here uh, that would say uh, Adam wasn't like God. Adam wasn't lesser than God. They'll even say Adam wasn't inferior to God. They'll say that Adam was God. Um, and, and even that kind of concept, that phraseology there, um, don't you think that if Adam was of the same essence of God, that the punishment of Adam by God would be impossible? That if someone who was of equal a role or authority or essence could punish someone else of equal authority or essence, uh, even right. having it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. make an ounce of sense. So, 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 what do what do how do we as Christians um, uh, go to these cult groups, these these heretical doctrines? How do we how do we shed light on the truth? Okay, this is this is the phrase that you're using. Yes, but let's unpack the theology of this. What's the best way to kind of to exegete the scriptures a little bit more accurately for these people, since they're using biblical language, but they're not using a biblical definitions to define that language. Well, I, I think it. I think their problems are even more fundamental than definitions. If they're not going to ask the obvious questions themselves, then we need to ask those questions for them. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that that's sort of the the, the low hanging fruit, if you will, you know, of, of how to converse, you know, with people who believe these things. Well, okay, if you believe this, then then how is this thing over here true? And 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 you know, you, you get into the place where they you know, Lord willing, you know, they, they realize that, you know, I got a real problem here because if this is true, then this, this, this other thought must be true. And it obviously isn't, you know, so I, I think we, we need to help them see what the, instead of just sort of proof texting things you know, right. for them, because they're just going to you know have their own spin on something. I think you need to ask the probative questions uh, that um, extend from this thing they're they are wanting you to believe. And I, often in Q and A, you know, and I, I, I do this a lot because especially if it's like at a, you know, one of these sort of fringe events or like a paranormal talk show or whatever, where, where I, I view part of my purpose being there is to give these people a, a better view of scripture and, and to restore Jesus reputation a little bit, you know, in, in their heads. And they, they might, they might 
you know, they may not, they, they might hate the Lord for good reasons or bad reasons, you know, or stupid reasons, or yeah, I under, kind of understand that reasons, you know, per personal pain and whatnot. But what I typically try to do is look, for, for me to change my mind and come over to your side, here are the five or six things I need. So, I, I mean, I'll say it public, and I might, I might be thinking, you don't have a prayer of ever, you know, meeting one of these, these needs. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, but I'm, I'm being honest with you. I'm not, I'm not writing you off. I'm telling you, mm -hmm. I'm being as honest with you as I can. I'm telling you, here's how to win this discussion. Here's how to bring me from where I am to where you are. These are the things I must know. So it, it goes beyond pointing, pointing out to them, you know, you have a real, you have a real problem of logic here or a contradiction you know, make it personal. You know, I can't agree with you. I can't come over to where you are unless you solve this for me. So solve it for me. I mean, can you help me? Can, can you do that for me? Because I'm, I'm willing to listen. And if, if you can do that, we're good, you know? So it, it you know, it, it helps, it gives them homework. It, 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 um, it doesn't just sort of, you know, beat them over the head with something. It doesn't diminish their ability, you know, to, to think. I mean, but but you're going to have to start the ball rolling, because in a lot of these systems, they they just don't think about what what their positions mean. And so, if if you can spot those weaknesses very clearly, just tell them this is what I need from you. You know, if you really want me to to come over to your side, I, I got to have these questions answered. You know, and, and see where it goes. That's good. Okay, so we're wrapping up the show here this evening. Uh, let's uh, let people know how they can get in contact with you, your ministry. I don't want to say in contact with you, but follow you, follow uh, your books, uh, authorship. You came out with a book called sure. Angels recently. I read through that one as well. Uh, awesome. I'm rather dyslexic. I listen to the audio version very carefully. <laughs> um, uh, big fan of both of Unseen Realm and Angels. Uh, one of the guys who's going to be filling in as our new co-host in January, uh, we, we started having him go through the book, me and the old co-host, Michael Miller. And uh, he said, man, I, I so believe the Unseen Realm. I'm beginning to doubt the real realm. So I, I thought it was really funny He's that he was- beginning to doubt the, to the, doubt the what? The real realm, the, the, seeable, the seen realm, <laughs> because the Unseen Realm is so clear. He was he was being facetious. Uh, yeah. uh, but he, he loved the book. And uh, it, it's anyone that I recommend it to that actually goes to and reading it, uh, listening to your podcast. I have never had one person walk away going, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't see the connections or- I don't think it's biblical, yeah. but it's it's very rooted in the text. I'm thankful for your scholarship and your work. Uh, so, so let people know how they can get in contact with you. Sure. <clears throat> yeah, uh, my homepage is dr, as in doctor, drmsh, those are my initials, dot com, drmsh.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at, at msheiser. Um, of course, you can go up to nakedbiblepodcast.com and subscribe to one of the feeds there on iTunes or you know, any of the, the common podcast sites. You're going to be able to find it. But if you go to drmsh.com, that's kind of the nerve center you know, for everything I do. Uh, blogging, books, podcasts, YouTube channels. I mean, it's, all, it's all there in the menus. Um, you can find out about the, the, the school, the School of Theology that we're starting in February. Um, it starts February 10th. You can find out about that. I have a nonprofit, mclot.org. Again, you can find that from my homepage. And that exists right now to provide uh, translations of the stuff that I have the rights to, the little book Supernatural and my short, my little short book, What Does God Want? Uh, that's for seekers, new believers, 
it, it'll help prepare them for supernatural. Supernatural prepares people for unseen realm. But I want to try to produce as much content as I can for free to just put online and hope someone steals it and, and uses it. So eventually my nonprofit will we'll, we'll move that, we'll transition to video. You know, we'll do audio files of the translations. Supernatural exists in 25 translations right now. Uh, what this got one is in about eight, but I want to do audio versions and then we'll start into video. So I'm trying to produce as much content as I can to scatter to the wind, um, you know, because I think the church is going to need it. I think we're going to, we're headed into some dark times as far as the institutional ability to train people who do ministry uh, in the local church. And so I'm trying to encourage other scholars to, to can as much as they can and give it away. So yeah. this is this is the goal, you know, to do as much of that as we can while we are able to do it. Excellent. And and we would like to do likewise. So uh, because we're not smart like Dr. Heiser, we invite other people who are smart <laughs> like Dr. Heiser onto the show and ask them questions that we would like answered. Uh, you know, if you guys want to help support us and keep us alive, there's a link that down in the description video. You can donate on remnantradio.com. Mm-hmm the remnantradio.com that didn't sound right the first time uh again thank you so much for coming on and we're going to have you on next week uh we're hopefully going to pick up our conversation about angels and angelology uh for those of you who are out there we're going to try to pick up uh, a part two of that i believe michael miller my old co-host is going to be here uh for one last time one last hurrah uh he was really bummed that he didn't get to be here this time because he had a lot of questions for you but uh thank you guys so much for watching uh remnant radio leave us a subscribe here on the video hit the like button make sure to ring the bell so you get notifications every time we go live 8 30 p.m monday nights uh central standard time every single monday night be blessed and we will see you guys next week want to thank kairos classrooms for sponsoring this episode of remnant radio and if you're out there you've ever wondered hey I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.